Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Ali Wine. Ali is a senior analyst for Eurasia's group Global Macro Geopoliticals Practice. He is a term member of the Council on Foreign Relations, a David Rockefeller Fellow with the Trilateral Commission, and a Security Fellow with the Truman National Security Project. He also serves on the Foreign Policy Board, America's Board of Directors. And he is the author of America's Great Power Opportunity, Revitalizing U.S. Foreign Policy to Meet the Challenges of Strategic Competition. And we're going to be spending most of our time talking about that book, though likely not exclusively talking about that book. And I really want to welcome you to the deep dive. How are you, Arlie? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on. You know, this is regular listeners of the show are always going to be like, damn, he says the same thing all the time about like, this is a very timely conversation. (laughs) But I I credit that to wonderful curation of guests that I managed to get people who are who are always in a position to speak very eloquently to the issues of the day and America's strategic place in the world, particularly vis-a-vis Russia and and China, the two powers most featured in the book, is is clearly of critical importance at at this particular moment for a variety of reasons. We have an ongoing war in the Ukraine. Um, We have severe economic and and, and social issues with China. And and the way in which those things are framed is a um, constant part of, I think, the American narrative. So I think we're in a in a really great place to have a very robust conversation about these about these issues. So again, perfectly timed. I want to give you an opportunity to just share, you know, what made you take on this particular book project at this particular moment in time. Well, first of all, thank you so much again for for having me on on your show and thank you for the kind words about about the book. So, the I don't know that there was necessarily I should say I don't know that there was necessarily an immediate precipitant or an immediate impetus for writing the book, but I, I, I can tell you a little bit about the origin story. So, so great power competition really takes off and becomes ubiquitous in mainstream discourse in late 2017 and early 2018. So in late 2017, the Trump administration publishes its national security strategy, really codifying great power competition as sort of the anchoring construct for U.S. foreign policy. And then the following month in in early 2018, we have the publication of the administration's national defense strategy. And and I should say that prior to 2017 and 2018, um, great power competition had been starting to get, it had been starting to feature more prominently in mainstream discourse, but I would say that it it wasn't as ubiquitous. Uh, I would say that with with Russia's incursion into Ukraine and subsequent annexation of Crimea in, in 2014, and then with China's steady reclamation of territory in the South China Sea, Great power competition started featuring more prominently, but I would say it was more in, in, in academic discourse, in scholarly discourse. It wasn't as prominently featured in, in policymaking discourse, but with the publication of those two documents that I just mentioned, uh, the construct really skyrocketed. And 
Um, I initially conceived, and I, I think I make this point in the in the preface to the book. I initially conceived of the book as an attempt to redress my own ignorance because with these with the national security strategy and the national defense strategy, the term became ubiquitous almost overnight. Um, you would see it in uh, in testimony, in articles, in reports, in speeches, in interviews. It, it really uh, it was it was ubiquitous. It was in the air. It was in the water and. I said, well, goodness, if this, given how ubiquitous this term is, given how self-evidently important it is, it's important for me as somebody who is interested in U.S. foreign policy, I, I need to get a handle on the term. And what I found was that when I would put, in many ways, a kind of the most foundational question to, to interlocutors, I would say, what is great power competition? How do you define great power competition? What I found was that there was a gap. There was a gap between invocation on the one hand, and that is to say, folks across the political spectrum, in policymaking circles, in scholarly circles, the term was invoked very frequently. And yet I couldn't, I, I wasn't able to identify or I wasn't able to extract a shared understanding or a shared definition of the term. So there was a, I found this gap between invocation on the one hand and interpretation on the other. And so I set out to write this book to, to kind of to probe, what is this term? What is this construct? And I'll just make one last point and then I'll stop by way of introduction. What I discovered as I the further along I got in the process of, of doing research for the book, uh, interviewing uh, folks for the book, what I found was that this gap became more be, between interpret between invocation on the one hand and interpretation on the other became more and more pronounced. And when you have a construct that is so flexible, so elastic, so malleable, uh, it lends itself to very widespread appropriation, or some people might say misappropriation. And so what, what I find striking is that observers who render very different policy prescriptions, all, you know, they can still come back to great power competition. So there are some observers who say uh, we that the United States should stay in Afghanistan in order to compete more effectively with China and Russia. They talk about great power competition. There are other observers who say, no, it was the right move for the United States to withdraw from Afghanistan so that we can now focus more squarely on China and Russia. Again, great power competition. And so um, I tried to write a book to redress my own ignorance about what the term meant. And what I discovered was that what I thought was my own ignorance about the term, I think it actually, it wasn't so much my own ignorance. It was more that, again, there's just this very significant gap between uh, invocation um, and interpretation on the other. And I think that it's important for U.S. foreign policy that we bridge that gap or narrow that gap. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a it's a term that I, I would agree, obviously, with your with your observation and your thesis that it's a term you hear more and more regularly. And it's also it, it does liken back to the the coming maybe older ways of thinking about, you know, we're all on a geopolitical chessboard and, you know, that kind of grand strategy. Um, before we start to get a, a little deeper, I was thinking about the, the question that you very astutely asked that led to working on the book, you know, how do you define great power competition? Um, I'd like to actually start with the question that takes a that takes that question, but I'm going to lop off a piece of it, um, which is how do you define a great power? Goodness. So this question is incredibly difficult. Uh, and I should say I, I'm not evading the question. I, I'm, uh, it might seem like I'm trying to buy myself a little bit of time, but I, I promise I'm going to get to the question. Um, so. A very critical part of the book is actually, as you just did, is, is actually deconstructing this concatenation. So great power competition, it's a concatenation. So the first part, great power, and then the second part, competition. Each of those individual terms is highly contested. Each of those individual terms, and, and I should say, when I say that each of those terms is highly contested or that each of those terms is defined in, in a wide variety of ways, 
we're talking about very esteemed observers, very esteemed scholars, very esteemed policymakers who define those terms in different ways. So I imagine we'll get to, to competition in a little bit, but, but great power. So one definition of great power is uh, it's framed in, in maybe not an exclusively military sense, but in a principally military sense. And so the idea is a great power is, is able to, uh, or great power should be capable of waging a sustained long-term military conflict with sort of a, a peer. And so you have one sort of one you know, conception of a great power that is focused on a country's uh, military capabilities. And so by that, you know, by that criterion, of course, the United States, it's the world's foremost military power. You know, China uh, has the world's second largest defense budget. Uh, Russia, it had not only has formidable conventional military capabilities, it also has the world's largest nuclear arsenal. But then in terms of why the, the definition is is contested. So if you look at which three countries are, are traditionally classified as great power, so it's the United States, China, and Russia. And so those are the three countries that I talk about most in the book. But let's leave aside for a moment military power. Let's look at economic power. So the United States, yes, it's the world's foremost military power. It also happens to be the world's largest economy. China possesses the world's uh, second largest defense budget, the world's second largest economy. But uh, there are several countries that have economies larger than Russia's. So India has an economy that has a larger economy than Russia. Japan has a larger economy. Uh, South Korea has a larger economy. And so there are many observers who say, well, um, if you look at not only certain countries that have larger economies uh, than, than Russia's, but also there are a number of countries. And again, you look at India, Japan, South Korea, Australia. Um, there are a number of countries that are far more integrated into the international system. They're far more integrated into core post-war international institutions. And so some observers... When you say that the great powers of the United States, China, and Russia, some observers will rejoin, well, why not Australia? Why not India? Why not Japan? Their economies are larger than those of Russia. They're more integrated into the international system. And so there's a really robust debate about what it means to be great. And uh, and so I, I, include, I, I believe I include a quotation uh, in the book that says that increasingly it seems as though the definition of a great power, it's, it's very much in the eyes of the beholder. It's very subjective. And so increasingly a great power is a power that is perceived to be great depending on who the observer is depending on the criteria that one stipulates but but great power is it's a malleable term it's an inherently subjective term so when we talk about what is a great power what is a middle power what is a not great power uh, these are these are subjective terms i think that the criteria vary depending on uh, on the particular interlocutor with whom you are engaging. And so it, it's, it's interesting. So if great power is, if great power is a flexible, let's just say to, to be charitable, if, if great power is a flexible term, if competition is a flexible term, then when you put the two together, you're going to, the concatenation that results is going to be that much more flexible. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that that eye of the beholder argument is an essential one, right? Because as we're having this conversation and, and thinking about all these, these issues, there's, meta narratives that are routinely at work that sort of what's the right word they gear us up for a certain way of thinking you know i was born in the in the 70s and so lived through a late seven a late 70s 80s cold war construct right so all of my thinking growing up exists within that certain milieu right and so why I want to think about how we define a, a great power is because so much of our conversations 
hinges on those sorts of of ideas, right? What defines um, great versus not great? And so, what I I want to push a little more on that because when we when we are defining these terms in a military con- construct or an economic construct or in the ways those over overlap and interlink, it does lead us to certain sorts of conclusions as compared to if maybe we had other criteria. So how do we, if possible, think about great powers within a different construct than solely military and or economic and how those interact? So I think that there are a number of there are a number of dimensions of, of power. So there's there's military power, there's economic power, there is technological power, there's diplomatic power, there's soft power. There are a number of uh, of dimensions of of power, um, and I think that some observers might even argue that there is ideational power, uh, there is narrative power. So actually, let me actually focus on that dimension of, of power for a little bit because I think that it. It, it figures prominently in the book, but I, and I think that it's also an important dimension of power. It's also an important dimension of competition. So take the United States and China, and, and we can, uh, I imagine we'll talk about Russia in, in due course, but let's just take the United States and China. So if you look at most traditional metrics of power, so uh, the size of uh, the, the size of military outlays, the size of gross domestic product, by, by most metrics that one would would use to define uh, power. The United States and China are the world's two most powerful countries. Um, and yet, when you look at their you know, their competition, I think that a critical part of it, uh, it centers around narratives. The United States wants to promulgate the narrative that it is a resilient democracy, that it is capable not only of weathering its own socioeconomic challenges, but that it is also capable of mobilizing coalitions abroad to address the pressing transnational challenges of our time. And, and, the, and the panoply of those challenges is familiar, climate change, food insecurity, proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. And so the United States wants to, again, portray itself as being a, a resilient power. China, on the other hand, it wants to, I think, promulgate two uh, interlocking reinforcing narratives. The first is that the United States is in terminal decline. It's in systemic decline. And that China, by contrast, is inexorably resurgent. The reason I bring up those perceptions or the reason I bring up those narratives is perceptions and realities are not divorced from one another. Perceptions and realities, they are intimately intertwined. And that is to say, let's say you are, and, and I realized that just a few minutes ago, I, I, I cast the term middle power as being one of these malleable uh, and, and perhaps unhelpful constructs. So, I'm, so I, I, I suspect I'm going to be somewhat hypocritical. I'm, I'm going to use this term now. Imagine that you are one of those middle powers. Uh, and, and, and here, middle powers basically mean all of those other powers, basically out besides the United States and China. Uh, imagine that you are a middle power and you are thinking about not only not only how competition is presently playing out between the United States and China, but you're trying to make your calculations about how this competition is going to look like in five years, 10 years. Now, no one has a crystal ball and a critical part of making decisions is thinking about what the world is going to look like five years or, or 10 years hence. You do scenario planning. Uh, and there's perhaps, a, there is a certain science, I imagine, that goes into constructing scenarios for how the international system will evolve. But there's no there's no uh, scientific formula. There's no scientific formula that says that in 10 years, here's exactly how the world will look like. You have, there are changes of leadership. There are strategic surprises. There are systemic shocks, such as the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, such as Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that that, that factor into that uh, into those assessments, and so 
for all of those reasons, there's a certain subjectivity and a critical part of that subjectivity that goes into thinking about what the world is going to look like. It's it's narratives. And so if you are a middle power and if you buy into China's narratives that the United States is terminally declining, that China is inexorably resurgent, perhaps you begin to comport yourself in ways that are more likely to make those narratives come true. So let's say that you are on the fence, you're trying to balance your relations between the United States and China. If you believe in the narratives that China is promulgating, perhaps you start to strengthen your economic linkages to China. Perhaps you start to quiet down. If, you, if you've been critical of China's human rights abuses, perhaps you uh, don't air those criticisms as loudly. If on the other hand, so let's say on the other hand, you look at China's difficulties with implementing zero COVID, if you look at some, if you look at China's crackdown on major technology companies, if you look at China's increasing estrangement from advanced industrial democracies, and if you render the judgment that, hey, perhaps the United States is, maybe it's not back, perhaps the United States is coming back and the United States is more resilient than I had thought, perhaps then you don't stop criticizing China's human rights abuses. Perhaps then you start to increase your linkages with the United States. And so it's all a long-winded way of saying that when we think about great powers, a great power is not only one that, that is powerful in a so-called traditional sense, militarily or economically. I think that a great power is also capable of, of telling a compelling story. It's, it's capable of telling a compelling story to its own public. It's capable of telling a compelling story to its principal nation state competitors. It's also capable of telling a compelling story to the rest of the world. Um, and in this regard, actually, um, I, I wouldn't call Ukraine a great power because I, I don't think that Ukraine has the military capabilities or the economic capabilities that the United States, China and Russia possess. But you want to talk about compelling narratives. Look at the president of Ukraine, uh, President Zelensky. President Zelensky has emerged as a global icon. He, um, he has been an extraordinarily effective uh, storyteller. He has inspired nationalism uh, at home in Ukraine. He has stymied uh, Russia's disinformation efforts. Uh, he has emerged as a powerful uh, voice for democracy. And he really has become, again, a, a global figure. And so, again, you know, when we think about whether it's leaving aside the term great, but when we just think about what makes a country powerful, uh, to your question, I, I do think that it's important that we, we not only consider traditional indices of power, uh, but that we look at perhaps... Uh, I, I don't want to say squishier because they're not squishy, but perhaps some more abstract, intangible dimensions of power. And I think that a critical one is going to be storytelling, narrative, te uh, narrative setting. Um, and I think that as we look at how competition between the United States and, and China plays out, I think that we should pay attention to the stories that they're telling each other, that they're telling their publics and that they're trying that they're trying to tell to the rest of the world. And I think that's that's why I wanted to spend some time here, because you know, the narratives and the storytelling, I, I think, are are critical, right? Like, you know, at the end of the day, I've, I've always said as a as a son of immigrants, America is a mythology to, mm -hmm. a, to a certain extent. One, because it tells a story about itself that has become a, a dominant cultural narrative around the world. And it also, through a, a lot of just poor historical reckoning, it has told the story to its, its in citizens that reinforce that narrative, right? So I, I wonder if both of these realities, meaning the, the China example that you gave and the American example, one declining, one resurgent, you know, what if we exist in a world where neither of those are true, right? Where we're faced with some other reality, which can only be discerned through 
telling a different narrative, right? Which sort of twists me back to how do we define great powers? And now we can get to competition, right? Because we've, we've, and I'm not saying you're doing this. I'm just saying generally, we, we tend to think in a, in a kind of dominant capitalist global model in competitive ways, right? Things are zero sum. If America wins, some other countries have to lose to some extent or not win as much. And is there an opportunity when we are faced with such systemic challenges like climate change, like um, infectious disease, things that don't live by these rules um, to redefine competition, right? Like, is it is it in our best interest to be competitive in the way we have been competitive in the past vis-a-vis that greatness narrative that I kind of brought up there? It's... It's such an important set of questions and a, a number of reactions, a number of reactions to, to your questions that, that are all you know, so important. And I, I'm not going to do justice to the questions that you just posed, but I'll, I'll give I'll try to. You'll do justice. This well, is what this I, is all about, man. I'll we're going to hash this out together. I'll try. I'll, I'll try. Um, so I would say so, so let me begin with the let me begin with the the last question first and then I'll, I'll sort of go in reverse. So I would argue I, I would go one step further. We not only have an opportunity to sort of reconceptualize competition, I think we have an imperative precisely because of those transnational challenges that you that you mentioned. Uh, I cannot conceive of I cannot conceive of a world in which zero sum competition would allow us to make progress on slowing climate change, upholding uh, a non-proliferation order that really does appear to be on its last legs that would allow us to uh, redress uh, food insecurity, and we can go on and on. Uh, there has to be some reconciliation between the inevitability of competitive dynamics on the one hand and the enduring necessity of long-term cohabitation on the other. And and again, I, I don't want to sound overly sanguine, which is why I mentioned I, I do think that certain competitive dynamics are intrinsic to relations between nation states. I don't think that those dynamics are going to disappear. And sadly, I think that they're only likely to intensify. But we have to. So I would say there's not only an opportunity, it, it's really it behooves policymakers, analysts, other interested observers to to translate that opportunity uh, into to, to realize that opportunity. But we, we are going to have to find a way to to reconceptualize competition so that we bring competitive elements and cooperative ones into greater alignment. Um, and then going to your first question. So one of the points that I try to make in the book, you said that what if neither of those narratives is true, neither the narrative that the United States is promulgating is true? What about if narratives that the China is promulgating are not true? One of the arguments that I make in the book is that I actually don't think that a power transition between the United States and China is, is likely. Uh, I don't think that we are going to see, uh, I, I think the narrative of terminal U.S. decline is overstated. I think that the narrative of inexorable Chinese resurgence is overstated. And I think that the sooner the United States and China accept the reality that neither will be able to dominate the other, the sooner that both countries accept that they are going to be enduring pillars of geopolitics, that they will have to coexist over the long term, uh, the sooner that they accept that that proposition, not just in the abstract, but the sooner they accept it psychologically, I think that the more the more quickly that they will then be able to turn to the task of actually defining the, the parameters of long-term cohabitation. And forging that path towards long-term cohabitation is going to be very challenging for both countries. The United States, well, first of all, the United States, it is the world's preeminent power. And I think that the the end of the Cold War seemed to be a vindication of U.S. norms, U.S. precepts, the the current configuration of the international system. Uh, China, on the other hand, it too believes itself to be exceptional in the annals of human history. 
It believes that the post-industrial revolution period, it believes that that roughly, let's say, two and a half centuries, it believes that roughly two and a half century period not to be the norm, but to be an aberration. And China says that prior to the industrial revolution, you know, China used to be the world's preeminent power. So what do you do when you take two countries that each believe themselves to be exceptional in the annals of human history, and you tell them that you have to coexist indefinitely? But so I think that both narratives are, are the narrative of terminal American decline, the narrative of inexorable Chinese resurgence. I think that both of those narratives are overstated. The two countries will have to find a way to coexist. One last point that I'll make, just you know, getting to your questions, getting to the set of questions that you asked. When you look at, for me, a really sobering moment, I think it was, and you, and you mentioned sort of infectious disease, I think that a, a really sobering moment for, for myself as I was writing this book, and I think a sobering moment for really for, for all of us, was the, the global response to the outbreak of COVID-19. My, my thought had been, and, and perhaps my, my naive thought had been in retrospect, when, when the World Health Organization, I'm forgetting the exact date, but when the World Health Organization declared that uh, coronavirus uh, was no longer an epidemic, but it was a pandemic, I thought that that declaration would occasion the kind of emergency bilateral cooperation between Washington and Beijing that we saw when Lehman Brothers collapsed. So you remember when Lehman Brothers collapses, there was an immediate recognition in the United States, in China, in the, in the international community that we have a real problem on our hands and that there's a potential for what was then a fast-moving recession unchecked to morph into another Great Depression. So in, in late 2008, early 2009, the United States and China, they engage in emergency bilateral cooperation. They activate the G20. And, and, and again, 2008, 2009, they were, they were devastating for the global economy. But I think importantly, they could have been a lot worse. I thought that we would see a similar kind of dynamic play out in the aftermath of the World Health Organization's declaration that the coronavirus was no longer an epidemic, but it was a pandemic. Not only did we not see that kind of emergency bilateral coordination, we actually saw something far more pernicious. COVID-19 marked a real inflection point in the U.S.-China relationship for the worse. If you look at the U.S.-China relationship prior to COVID-19, it was it was already trending in, in the wrong direction. Uh, but the but the trajectory after COVID-19, uh, it became much sharper. Uh, the, the downward trajectory became much sharper. Um, and so I think if if the pandemic, uh, if the pandemic uh, foretells kind of the future of the relationship, and if the pandemic, uh, we're in a very alarming place. You know, just one article, just as another example, one other article that I was just one article that I was reading prior to our hopping on the call, CIPRI, which is a think tank uh, based in in Stockholm, uh, the Stockholm International Peace Peace Research Institute, they put out a report just a few days ago, or maybe was it today, or maybe a few days ago in which they said that uh, the world's nuclear stockpile is projected to increase for the first time since the end of the Cold War. Again, a very, very, uh, very, very sobering judgment. So when we look at when we look at the institutions of global cooperation, when we look at the habits of global cooperation, uh, they really are they're not fit for purpose in dealing with the kinds of challenges that you laid out. So we really have our work cut out for us. And and I think this provides like a really powerful opportunity because we're we're seeing alarming trends, right? And one of the things that, as I read through the book, that that became like very apparent to me, beyond the the general scholarship of the book and the and the sheer number of sources that were used, is do we have an opportunity if we're thinking about competition and greatness and and aligning ourselves to a potentially different way of operating within the world that is a, a ecological perspective, right? So as much as as military and economics are emphasized, 
I, I'm offering like just for my, my editorial of one, right? That thinking about the ecological way in which the world works with us as species, part of that is critical, right? Absolutely. And so I, I wonder, where do we leave space for, in your mind, the the voices and the movements of of those that come not from institutions, academics, trade delegations, and those kind of people, right? And and the reason why I ask that is if I think about some of the most significant movements of the 20th century, right? You have the the civil rights movement in the United States, highly connected to eventually the massive anti-war movement against in against Vietnam, leads to nuclear proliferation movements throughout the 80s. I remember huge marches throughout the world. All of those things are the result of grassroots movements, right? They're not coming from the halls of power, right? I I, I think of if you were in 1955 looking to talk and try to get a sense of the world and where it was going to go, Martin Luther King was not going to be the guy you talked to, right? Because you didn't know who he was. He was a, a minister from um, Atlanta that was living in Birmingham right? Or Montgomery, rather. And then Montgomery bus march, he becomes the guy, and now the entire trajectory of the world has changed, right? So how do we, and I use that as an example to say, how do we factor in that sort of discovery of voices that can offer a different way forward? Well, they play, I mean, the grassroots organizers, they play, they have played an indispensable role, they do play an indispensable role and they will play an, an ever more indispensable role. So I mean, just think about some of the, I mean, you mentioned the civil rights movement and you mentioned the, you know, the movement to, to sound the alarm about the proliferation of nuclear weapons. Um, I think also just the, the extent to which climate change or the fight against climate change is now a dominant uh, you know, concern or at least a dominant agenda item for governments across the world, for businesses across the world is in no small part the result of concerted grassroots pressure. So, I mean, and think about, we were talking earlier about narratives. Think about how, think how dramatically the narrative has changed around climate change. So in the, you know, in the 1980s and the 1990s, one of the sort of one of the prevalent narratives was, and I, primarily I think from the, the corporate community was, you can, you can attend to climate change or, or you can go green. Then sort of around the turn of the century, the narrative started shifting, I think in large part because of grassroots pressure. And then the narrative around the turn of the century was, Maybe you can do both in parallel. Maybe you can you can think about you know you can attend to climate change and you can also preserve your bottom line. And now I think that the narrative is uh, has taken sort of one iteration, one more iteration forward. And now the narrative is you can't attend to your bottom line unless you go green. Now I don't want to say that, that narrative is ubiquitous. It certainly isn't. But now that is that is increasingly that's an increasingly prevalent narrative in the corporate community, and it's also an increasingly prevalent narrative among governments. Uh, governments saying. We cannot sustain growth. We cannot sustain productivity if climate change is devastating is devastating our foodstuffs. If climate if climate change is leading to ever growing deforestation. If climate change is uh, exacerbating food insecurity. So that we're we're seeing right now how this narrative on on climate change has evolved in the corporate community in the policymaking community. And I think that grassroots organizers play a, a tremendous role, and they will continue to do so. So. So the role of, and, and then one point I wanted to make since you, specifically since you brought up the civil rights movement, I, I wanted to bring up the, the relationship between, you know, what we consider sort of domestic, domestic issues, uh, domestic policy issues and foreign policy issues. I think that that boundary has always been 
somewhat contrived, but I think that it's becoming the the superficiality or the artificiality of that boundary, I think, is becoming ever more apparent. But when I was doing research for the book, I was really struck when I, when I was doing some research on the civil rights movement, and I was struck in particular by the foreign policy implications of Brown versus Board of Education. Now, of course, when Brown versus Board of Education was rendered, of course, it was it was framed and it was seen immediately and understandably as a principally domestic, as sort of a, a domestic victory. So this is a victory for civil rights at home. And yet, if you look at, at the U.S. government's advocacy in basically its appeal to the Supreme Court, it appealed to the Supreme Court to make the right decision, not so much on domestic policy grounds, but on foreign policy grounds. So you remember in the immediate aftermath of World War II, so in the immediate aftermath of World War II, you have a wave of decolonization movements. You have a number of new nations that come into being, comprising predominantly non-white populations. And they're looking to the United States, they're looking to the Soviet Union. The United States and the Soviet Union are looking to, basically, for strategic reasons, they're looking to, to curry favor with these newly independent countries. And the United States recognizes that, so the Soviet Union is saying, the United States, it discriminates against racial minorities, it discriminates against ethnic minorities, Look at, the, look at the plight of minority populations inside the United States. And the United States recognized that if this narrative from the Soviet Union went sort of unrebutted, if it, it, was, if it was encountered, that that propaganda offensive coming from the Soviet Union, it could really undercut America's uh, soft power. It could really undercut America's narrative. Again, coming back to this theme of our conversation about narratives. And so the U.S. government makes a very powerful appeal uh, to the Supreme Court saying, please, you need to render the right verdict in Brown versus Board of Education so that we can hold up this decision and basically say to the Soviet Union, look, we acknowledge that we have work to do to to lift, to uplift the welfare of our minority communities. And look, we are taking steps in that direction. And so with Brown versus Board of Education, with other Supreme Court verdicts that were rendered, with various pieces of civil rights legislation that were passed, we were able to demonstrate that the Soviet Union's narrative was, we were basically able to sort of to, to blunt some of the Soviet Union's narrative momentum. And I think that, so it goes back to your point about grassroots organizing. I really think that when we look at, you know, whether it's the fight against climate change, the fight against, you know, pandemic disease, I think it's imperative for the United States to demonstrate, if it's going to be seen as an effective global leader, I think it's imperative for the United States to demonstrate that it can attend to its own socioeconomic challenges. One of the biggest challenges for the United States right now, and I, and I do think that this challenge very much is going to be essential in this great power competition. Um, one of the biggest challenges for the United States right now is regaining the trust of the international community to demonstrate to demonstrate once more basic competence in managing its own domestic difficulties. We've lost, we in the United States, we've lost over a million Americans to COVID-19. Well over 80 million Americans have been effect, infected with COVID-19. Uh, income and wealth inequality are surging. You look at student loan debt surging. Uh, if you also look at life expectancy, uh, life expectancy in recent years in the United States has declined. And so I think that many, you know, many countries and not just competitors, by the way, even many friends of the United States, many allies, many partners, they look at the United States and say, well, if you want to if you want to mobilize coalitions, if you want to mobilize global coalitions to tackle climate change, to tackle pandemic disease, to tackle this panoply of transnational challenges, you have to first demonstrate to us that you can manage your own challenges at home. And we really haven't done uh, nearly as good a job uh, of, of managing those challenges at home as, as we can or as we must. And so there's a very intimate interplay between the perceptions of America's domestic competence and the desire for, for America's leadership abroad. And what is going to enable the United States to 
uh, manage those domestic challenges more effectively, grassroots pressure, it, it plays an indispensable role. Um, external pressure plays, I think, an important role, but, but grassroots domestic pressure plays an important role. So whatever the domestic challenge might be, grassroots organizers play a very, very important role. One last point that I'll make, and, and it's perhaps a philosophical point, but in terms of you know, how should grassroots organizers frame themselves? And of course, this is a very, very enduring debate. Um, and you mentioned, you know, you mentioned Dr. King. I think that Dr. King, he was effective for, for so many reasons. He was, he was visionary. He was just stratospherically, you know, eloquent. Um, but I think that he was also incredibly politically savvy. Um, and if you look at some of his, if you look at his speeches, if you look at his, his interviews, you look at his writings, he was very politically savvy in terms of building coalitions. He recognized that he was, he was literally in a minority, he was in a racial minority, but he was also in a minority in terms of the views that he was promulgating. And he recognized that when you are, when you are in a minority population, you hold a minority view and you are looking to convince, you're looking to appeal to a much broader electorate. And if you're looking to compel systems of power and privilege to change their views, you have to cast it, you have to form a coalition that is more encompassing, not more restrictive. And so Dr. King was very, I think, very powerful in making this point to say, look, we need, we, meaning in the African-American community, we need allies wherever we can get them. Um, we, cannot, we cannot reject out of hand all members of the white community or, or, or all members of certain communities. We have to draw as many people into the tent as possible. And so I think that he was very politically savvy in saying, look, we need to cast as wide an umbrella as possible. We need to enlist as many allies as possible. And yes, while, we, while it is true, that we in, in the African-American community and as part of the civil rights movement, while it is true that we are we are challenging entrenched systems of power and privilege, that if we can find allies in those systems of power and privilege, in privilege, let's bring them on board. So I think that he was, so I, I think that as we think about the lessons of Dr. King's advocacy for, for the present, I think that one of his, one of the important lessons is that whether, if you are an activist, saying that the United States needs to do more to advocate decar to pursue a decarbonization agenda. If you are an activist who says that the United States needs to reduce the salience of nuclear weapons, thinking about how not, not only how you can build an expansive coalition on the outside, but also how you can reach and build allies from within those systems of power and privilege and bring them to your side. Absolutely. You know, I, I love that you, you jumped to the, the foreign policy piece and the, the term being relevant because that was on my second page of notes. So we we got there without me having to <laughs> without me having to flip the page. And the and the reason why I think that's so important is often when I see that sort of Manishan thinking, you know, it's one or the other, the domestic, you know, foreign. We have guns or we have butter. You know, I I, I say to myself, when has that ever really been true? You know, we are. I think confronted with a, a lot of the realities that that you highlighted, where at least in the in the media I follow, a lot of people will say, you know, we're giving a lot of money to the Ukraine, and yet there's a lot of issues here at home, whether that's student loan debt relief or proper funding for schools or any number of different things that doesn't seem to get the same attention. You know, we're we we live in a reality. I was I was joking earlier today. That um, as of the moment we're recording this, there's now a new tampon shortage, right? And we've had an ongoing baby formula shortage. And it's stunning to me that in a country that purports itself to be great, to use the term, um, <laughs> these things exist. 
you know, and it's also ironic just to make another note that it seems like we're always short of the things that are needed for women and for families. How ironic um, that that seems to be the case. But I, I share all that to say that we're we're in this this moment where I think the lines between foreign and domestic are blurred is is too kind, irrelevant, probably is a better word. And I agree with the observation about Dr. King. I, I will offer this in agreement that he was he was also politically astute, visionary, eloquent, all of those things, but he also held potential allies to high account. Yes. And and one of the things that that irritates me, we're not doing that in this conversation, but irritates me generally is every Martin Luther King Day, we have the those who do not believe in anything Martin Luther King had to say will link to like one particular line, you know, and and use that as their crutch to say that didn't Dr. King want a different society? And I'm like, well, you didn't really read much of anything else that he that he read or said. Um, if you're landing on merely I have a dream, maybe the address at the Riverside Church where he came out very much against military incursions in Vietnam might be a better place to start. Um, but I'm not well, even going to go down that road. Well, well, just, well, but I think I mean, even, <laughs> even though this, I know that it's it's perhaps you know a, a little bit sort of tangential to sort of the the immediate focus of our conversation. But I, I do want to just to affirm what you said. I and I'll, I try, I'll try to be pithy, but I find I find Dr. King inspiring not as a caricature, but in, in his complexity. And I think that when we when we try too hard in retrospect to polish off the rough edges, when we try to reduce individuals to caricatures, when we try to oversimplify uh, the messages that that inspiring figures uh, have articulated, I actually think that we do we not only do history a disservice, we do activism a disservice. I think that we need to we need to celebrate Dr. King and his complexity, and I, and I would say I would say the same for for another uh, visionary figure, uh, Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, I think that he also as well. If you look back, his his struggles, his activism, his messages, they too um, have been reduced. And so I we shouldn't place them on a pedestal, and we shouldn't strip them of their nuance. We shouldn't strip them of their complexity. We should embrace nuance, embrace complexity, embrace rough edges. Uh, we should celebrate individuals, I should say, or we should reflect on individuals in their totality. And, and I think that, I think that too often, too often by reducing individuals to sound bites, too often by reducing individuals to slogans, we do history a disservice. And I think that we also forget some of the most important lessons that they have to teach us. Absolutely. I, I 100% agree with, with that. I spend most of my days in the world of complexity. So I'm, I'm a big fan of making sure that that, that doesn't happen. And I, I love the way within the book, you, you really do this throughout the book. But I, I made a note here that you, you talk about these, these seemingly contrast between the idea of you know, a, a reaffirming democracy, an ongoing democracy, and authoritarianism, and and we often make the narrative that these are the only two alternatives that we're that we're going between. And so i I want to give you a chance to kind of talk about you know why you wanted to open up that conversation a little bit more when we're starting to think about these these great power conversations and, and opportunities. No, thank you. And absolutely. So I think that there are, so first of all, there are varieties of democracy. There are varieties of authoritarianism. So when we, when we think about democracy, democracy is, it's a spectrum. It's a continuum. Uh, same for authoritarianism. So uh, 
it is true that if you perhaps if you take if you take various forms of democracy, if you zoom out to perhaps a bird's eye view or the 30,000 foot level, there may be some commonalities. But we see again, there uh, democracy, it, it is a category. It's a spectrum. It's it's not a it's, it's not sort of a, a singular monolithic entity. The same goes for authoritarianism. Um, and I also think that systems of governance, they evolve over time. So democracies evolve over time. Authoritarian systems evolve over time. And sometimes we see that sometimes we see countries that used to be much more uh, sort of much more effective stalwarts of democracy. Sometimes they begin to regress or exhibit signs of illiberalism. So I think one is that we need to, you know, we need to impart greater sort of rigor and greater nuance that that bifurcation. Um, the other reality is that, uh, and it, and I want to sort of go back to sort of another sort of enduring thread of our conversation, namely the management of these transnational challenges that are increasingly going to bear on human welfare and in some cases human survival. We really are going to need, in many cases, we're going to need to stitch together uh, sometimes uncomfortable coalitions. Uh, and and if we insist, I think that in dealing with climate change, in dealing with uh, nuclear proliferation and dealing with pandemic disease, we're going to need, in many cases, uh, very expansive coalitions. And sometimes those coalitions will be uncomfortable. Sometimes certain members of those coalitions will make uncomfortable bedfellows. But I mean, take climate change. I know it, it's 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 kind of the, the go-to example, and it feels a bit sort of hackneyed to talk about climate change and, and adduce climate change as uh, as as sort of the example about why cooperate, international cooperation is necessary, but it is sort of the paradigmatic example. I don't see a plausible scenario in which the world is going to be able to slow climate change if the United States and China don't salvage some baseline of cooperation. Uh, you have the United States and China as the world's two largest emitters of greenhouse gases. How can you have a meaning, how can you meaningfully bend the trajectory of climate change if the United States and China don't talk? And so, and I think that there's a comparable, or, or again, or take the take the proliferation of nuclear weapons. Um, if the United States, so the United States and Russia, they have the two largest stockpiles of nuclear weapons. China is rapidly modernizing its arsenal of nuclear weapons. If the United States, China, and Russia don't talk about nuclear weapons, what does it even mean to talk about efforts towards nonproliferation? They're not going to go anywhere. So I think that just at a so first on a sort of at a at a conceptual level, I think, again, there, there are varieties of democracy, there are varieties of authoritarianism. And then just at a practical level, in order to manage some of these difficult challenges, we're going to have to bring together some uncomfortable bedfellows or otherwise, I just don't see how we make progress on these issues. And I, I agree with that. I, I think we we do need to to do that. And I there's a bunch of stuff that that pops into my mind when we when we have that put on the table, right? Because you know, nations are are made up of people. People, however, are not the governments. And I've found in in my time having an opportunity to, to travel and interact with people, the the differences between what we know of each other as people inhabiting certain nation states with boundaries and geographic boundaries and all of that is usually vastly different from the policy of of the governments. And if we are going to coexist here, to whatever degree we're going to do that, I agree with you. We do need, we do need to have substantive conversations toward making all of this work better. So it, it's, it feels like we go back to the, the driving of the policy based on the activism coming from those that are on the outside. 
right? Who are the voices in these places that are going to exact pressure that maybe isn't the pressure we'll see right now to, to drive that kind of change? Because how do we define victory is the thing, right? If we're, if we're postulating that all of this is a competition, that has to imply that also that there are some sort of rules and structure. And so therefore there has to be an, an end game that leads to a victory. And, and one of the things I jotted down here is having a healthy society, how do we measure that to make that part of the victory? Because America's spending, having the highest military budget isn't serving me <laughs> right now, right? And, and I would say that it's likely not serving any of us, you know, when F-35s don't really fly, but they're very expensive. <laughs> well, see, so there's something in your question that I, 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 I really want to zoom in on, this, this, this notion of victory. And I, I try to talk a little about this, what I think is kind of a problematic notion of a victory in the contemporary geopolitical environment. One of the challenges of the United States is that in its previous dealings with significant nation state challengers, uh, the conception of victory or uh, the conception of victory, I think, was more was more discernible. And the United States has achieved or it has experienced decisive outcomes in its prior. So prior to its, its contemporary dealings with China and Russia, if you think about its previous encounters with significant nation state challengers, those interactions had decisive resolutions. So Japan surrendered. Germany surrendered. The Soviet Union collapsed. We, you know, we could talk about victory, loss, uh, the sort of those kind of that, that binary. It's not clear to me if you accept the proposition, and I try to put forward this proposition in the book, if you believe that China and Russia are likely to endure in one form or another, they're going to face significant difficulties at home. They're going to face significant difficulties abroad, but that they are going to endure in one form or another in perpetuity, that they will avoid a dramatic Soviet style of disintegration, then it's not really clear what victory means. And, and I think that it becomes further difficult to, to sort of discern what victory would mean or to articulate what victory would mean when you recognize that, or when, not when you recognize, but when you just sort of remind yourself of the range of interdependencies between these countries. It's, it's unpalatable to talk about interdependencies, and I sometimes find it unpalatable to talk about interdependencies. I, I recoil at what Russia is doing. I mean, you look at the the, the savagery, the, the brutality that Russia is, is, is visiting upon the people of Ukraine. You look at China's deteriorating human rights landscape. And so it feels uncomfortable to talk about interdependencies. But the global economy, for all the talk about deglobalization and decoupling, it remains substantially interlinked, as we've been talking about. When we think about these transnational challenges, they, they are going to increasingly uh, intermingle uh, the societies and the economies of the United States, China, and Russia. So when you, when you remain substantially interdependent with your competitors, when those competitors are likely to endure in one form or another, it's not clear to me what victory means. And that's why, as I try to say in the book, we really need to be thinking about not the achievement of a decisive victory. And it's not even clear what a decisive victory would mean in the present geopolitical context, but instead the pursuit of long-term cohabitation. Now, I recognize now some, some, uh, you know, some readers might say, well, if it's difficult, you know, you say that it's difficult to define victory, but isn't it also difficult to define cohabitation? It absolutely is. Absolutely. And I certainly don't pretend maybe maybe that'll be sort of a follow up book. But I do think we need to think hard about what what cohabitation looks like. I re- and I think I think that right now there is a certain psychological discomfort with thinking about what are trade offs that we are willing to make? What are concessions that we are willing to make? What are our truly vital national interests that we cannot compromise 
on. Um, and I think that also perhaps doing a little bit of kind of backwards planning. I, I think it would be helpful to imagine, let's imagine that it's the year 2050 or 2075 or 2100. And let's imagine that in 2050 or 2075 or 2100, that the international system is more stable than it is today, that relations between great powers are more stable than they are today. And then sort of working our way backwards and saying, what steps did the United States, China, Russia, other major powers take to get us there? Because for me, you know, as I, as I wrote the book and, and as, even as we're talking now, it's not, only I, it's not only that we have an opportunity to think about cohabitation, but really it's, it's an imperative. I just don't see what the alternative is. If you believe that the United States, China and Russia are going to be around in perpetuity, if you believe that these transnational challenges are going to place greater burdens on their respective economies and societies, are going to entangle their societies and economies more and more going forward, I just don't see what the alternative is to cohabitation. So the sooner I, I think that we get away from binaries of victory and defeat, yeah, victory and defeat, this, I think the sooner we get away from those binaries and we think about, okay, we're going to coexist over the long haul, we don't have a choice, what do we do? I think that the better off we'll all be in the long run. Yeah. And, and you know, it's it's interesting because I think it allows us to kind of go a little full circle. And I'm going to reference a, a person that might be lesser well known today than maybe he was during the Bush years, Bush, second Bush, not first Bush. But he's someone that that left a, a impact on me at the moment that is kind of carried forward, which is Dennis Kucinich. So here's a name not often brought up in context like this. But he he had an idea at the time, you know, it was a crowded democratic field before we landed on John Kerry. This was like Dean and Kucinich and John Kerry and a bunch of uh, John Edwards, who also, despite his um, personal failings, I thought offered the most prophetic view for America, which was that there were two very distinct Americas. So shout out to John Edwards, despite your very personal foibles. I still remember all of that. But back to Dennis Kucinich, because he said, you know, we need a Department of Peace. And and this was largely, you know, maligned and scoffed at and kind of, you know, poo-pooed and all that kind of stuff. But it always kind of stuck with me. And the reason why it did that, because I think when you align your nation with different goals, like peace and prosperity, you ultimately end up with very different results. And it, it brings me back again, I mentioned you know, child of immigrants. You know, America has had a, a, a narrative, to whatever degree, true or not, that you can come here and and find a better way of living vis-a-vis maybe where you were before for any number of reasons. And when you are faced with such existential crises at home, you know, all the things that we could have listed, but we're we're living in the aftermath of like tremendous gun violence in America, for example, right? Where if you're a a person thinking about coming to this country, do you want to send your kids to schools in a country where guns are massively proliferated, right? And I've traveled all over the world and everyone around the world always asks me about like, why do Americans have so many guns? That this comes up routinely. They're like, wow, America has a lot of fucking guns, right? So I think the narrative that existed in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s that got people to come here is now a vastly different narrative to those on the outside. And as much as people in power might not appreciate this because they're preaching a narrative of, you know, shining city on a hill. And when you go on the news in other countries, all you see is Americans are fucking crazy. This country's filled with guns. And they can't do anything. Those people are going to stay home. 
right? Like, and they're, you know, they're just going to make other choices. So how do we, thinking about these narratives, and I don't expect you to have the answer, right? Or you would have written a different book, right? <laughs> you wouldn't be talking to me, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, these to me are the existential crises, right? That the, the meta-narrative of the United States, relative, to, whether it's relative to China or relative to Russia or not, is breaking down. And we might not see this as a dissolution, but it is a shift. And, and that shift, I think, has really long-term consequences, much in the way that the dissolution of the Soviet Union victory, but also Afghanistan, the seeds were planted, those same people that helped run that dissolution, now 9-11, right? I look at the Ukraine, I see those same challenges. Like, Putin's a terrible guy, liar, but they are serious alt-right forces that exist in Ukraine that is now getting flooded with weapons and arms and all that kind of stuff. What does that look like 20 years from now? Win, lose, or draw? I don't have any idea, right? I'm just a dude in Brooklyn. But I want to like offer like that as a way to kind of get us into the final two segments of the show. So I know I said a lot. I don't even know if there's a question in there. But I just no, want to get your I just want to get your reflections on a, on on that and then I want to get to the final two segments of the show. Sure. It's I think a really really powerful set of observations and I would just make I would just offer two comments. One, we have to bring our narrative into greater alignment with our reality. We don't have a choice. And we've talked, er we, you know, we've talked earlier about the inextricable interdependence of domestic, sort of domestic renewal and external competitiveness. And I think that that interlinkage is only going to become more pronounced over time. So we, ha we have so much work that we have to do to bring our, our narrative, the narrative that we articulate more in, in consonance with the reality that we experience, number one. Number two, and, and I do want to end on a, on, on I guess, on a, on a somewhat optimistic note, and perhaps I, I, I'm a congenital optimist. I'm an optimist by, by nature. I actually do think if you take sort of the longer arc of American history, I mean, American history, it's, it, is a, uh, it is a checkered history, no doubt about it. It is, it is a potted history. Uh, there are many, many ugly, many ugly aspects of, of American history. Um, but something that gives me hope is if you look at the longer arc of American history, I do think that there is a story tradition of... Um, introspection as uh, introspection is a vehicle for renewal, and I think that whether we look at the the civil rights movement, the the green movement, the the, the movement for to take greater action against climate change, uh, when we think of the when we think of the uh, the struggle to give women the right to vote, I think that it, it the United States has a tradition of both as a result of external criticism internal criticism of looking inward and saying, what are we doing wrong? Where are the gaps between the reality that we preach or sort of the narrative that we preach and the reality that we live? And how do we narrow that gap? And and I think that we have, again, this tradition, we, we engage in introspection, we use that introspection to acknowledge our imperfections, uh, to do the hard work, to move ourselves forward, to, to narrow that gap. Um, and that process is never finished. That process is an ongoing process because with each, with each generation, each generation of American history, or each chapter of American history introduces new challenges. And so we continue to, to grapple with challenges. So I think that that, that effort to, to close the gap between narrative and reality, it is an ongoing struggle. But I think that the United States, it, it has a story tradition of, of working hard to, uh, to close that gap. And I think that we should, we should continue to do so. And I'll just offer, uh, you know, you mentioned that you're a, you're a child of immigrants, so am I. And I think when I think about what, what brought my parents to America, I think it was, uh, it was an idea and it was an idea. And I think that we need to get back to that, to, to really breathing new life into that idea. You know, my parents uh, came to the United States because they said, 
that you know our children, when they made a decision that they were going to have children, they said that our children are going to have greater opportunities in the United States. They're going to have greater economic opportunities. They're going to uh, they're going to be have greater opportunities to be upwardly mobile. Um, and and the United States again, it has this really incredible ability uh, over uh, over its history to bring to attract folks from across the world, uh, to have folks who make common cause contribute to a shared identity and we need to get back to that. So I, I think we should tra- I think that we should take great pride in in our efforts to engage in introspection as, as an agent of renewal to bring folks from across the world um, to to contribute to the American story uh, but we have a lot of work cut out for us. Absolutely and I'm I'm someone filled with hope, radical hope is a verb um, yes. and is a, a very radical idea. And, you know, it sucks, man, because I, I had like a whole other page, dude. And I, I wanted to get to like the eight principles, strategic opportunism. Well, next time we can do it for next a follow-up time, Next time. Follow-up you know, so, but this is good because what we've done is we've left a little a little teaser, right? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. people will should grab the book. They should engage with the book. It is, it is super interesting. Thank you. Um, it just has a, a lot of ideas that I think what I, I love books that don't seek to answer everything, but posit really interesting questions um, and allows you to like open up and and think for yourself and find more things. And it definitely does all that, all of that. And it does give some answers here and there. So it's, it's a, it's a great read. And, Thank you. you know, I, I will mention one analogy that I did want to get to. I didn't get to it, but the Russia as hurricane and China as climate change. That's another good one. So dig into the book. That's in, that's someone in the middle. <laughs> so <laughs> folks got to go through the book to get to that analogy, but it's, it was one of my underlined favorites. So with that said, I want to get to the final two two segments of the show. Um, the first is off the dome, where we just ask some rapid fire questions, and I have three of them. The first one is name a country or region not mentioned among these great powers, but that you think we should be thinking about a little bit more than we do. Sub-Saharan Africa. Good. That's a good one. <laughs> My second one is you interviewed a lot of people for this book. A lot of references, a lot of committees and groups and organizations that I'd never even heard of, right? So if you could go back and have access to a historical figure to include in your interviews for this book, who would it be and why? I'll say I'll say Dr. King. We talked about him for we, we talked about him extensively in our conversation, but I, mean, I would want to ask Dr. King, tell us more about this connection between what we do at home and what we do abroad. Tell us more about the role that domestic renewal plays in our external competitiveness, because the civil rights movement is the paradigmatic example of how what how we conduct ourselves at home affects our reputation abroad. And, and, and a, a core theme of this book, of course, is that domestic renewal is not tangential to external competitiveness. Domestic renewal is a precondition for external competitiveness. And so I would love to interview Dr. King, uh, and going back to another part of our conversation, to interview him so that I could really suss, suss out his thinking in its full richness and complexity and get past the sound bites. Absolutely. Uh, an, another good one. And final off the dome question is, is share with us one big problem or challenge that you feel you've tackled in 2022. It could be anything at all. Putting up new shelves, doesn't have to be anything super serious, germane to this, but if it is, go for it. <laughs> um, well, it's not unique to 2022. It's very much sort of, it's, a, it's an ongoing project. But I remember 
when I first started getting interested in political science, I was getting interested in political science or getting interested in world affairs. I remember very early on, I was afraid to be wrong. I was afraid that if I if I rendered a judgment, whether in, in an interview or, or put a judgment down on paper, and I, I was afraid that if I got something wrong, that that my, my reputation might take a hit or that, that uh, interlocutors might view me as being less credible. Uh, but as time has passed, the more the more the time has passed, the more that I've read, the more I realize how little I understand, the more I realize how little I know. And so now my focus is not on trying to be right, quote unquote. My focus is just on trying to learn. Um, and I think that that focus on trying to learn has just continued into 2022. So on a regular basis, um, I reach out to folks I admire in all kinds of fields. And I just say, hey, we haven't met, but I want to learn about your area of expertise. I don't know anything about your area of expertise, but I want to learn something about it. Would you have time for a cup of coffee or lunch um, now that now that sort of we're, folks are starting to meet up again in person? And so it's not unique to 2022, but just, I think, making continuing the shift from not trying to be right, but trying to learn, trying to ask the right questions, trying to build your base of knowledge. And, and that's been a lot of fun. That's 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 a, a great, great lesson. I think in, in that respect, we're, we're we're very similar, very curious about things. And it, it's another question we didn't get to, which is like, how do we get comfortable with like not knowing? How do we get comfortable that's with the unknown? Question. Which is the which is the same as like, I think it has the same sort of mythos as to what you just described, right? Like it's one of the things that that always makes me concerned when I'm watching like news or something like all these people are always so certain of stuff. And I'm like, how can you be so certain about any of this? Right? Like we, I would feel more comfortable if some of them just came on TV and just say, Hey man, I don't know. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like I would feel, I would, I would actually feel better because I would, I would think that by you admitting to me, you don't know, you're willing to do the work to actually discover potential solutions. Yes. But when they come out and they tell me they know everything, I'm like, we're fucked. Right. Yes. Because they're probably going to choose the wrong way, <laughs> you know, but but I, I love those answers. That was that was awesome. Um, I want to get us to the drop. And and like I said, the drop is an opportunity for us to share anything at all with our listeners. And my drop is actually a book. It's by an author. Her name is R.F. Kong. And she wrote, she's a, a fantasy writer. She has a trilogy called the Poppy War Trilogy. I just finished the first one, which is called The Poppy War. It's volume one of three. And I was just in the bookstore and and it caught my eye. I'm, I'm a long fantasy enthusiast, among other things. And I've been really trying to, as someone who grew up with the Tolkien's and the Asimov's and all these names over the past like decade or more, I've really tried to expand my reading to include more women authors, more women of color, just more global perspectives. And I, I saw the book and I just read it and I was like, this sounds awesome. And I picked it up and it's been even better than I thought. I've ordered the second one already. So, um, you know, anybody out there who's interested in maybe exploring some different types of fantasy, if they are fantasy readers, R.F. Kuang and it's The Poppy War Volume 1. The trilogy is called The Poppy War Trilogy. And that's my drop. So you're up. Oh, my turn. So uh, it's 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 really a drop for sort of two authors and just sort of an invitation to really reflect on their just both of them just having a, a just extraordinary body of, of work. Um, Tanisha Fuzzle uh, and Stacy Goddard. Uh, they are, I would say that when I'm trying to when I'm trying to make sense of kind of a thirty thousand foot view or thirty sort of taking a bird's eye view, what are the what are the tectonic shifts that are underway in geopolitics? What are the major drivers of flux in geopolitics? Really just 
understanding how is the world changing. Um, Tanisha Fuzzle and Stacy Goddard um, are are two of the professors and two of the scholars to whom I instinctively turn. Um, they are not just national treasures; uh, they are global treasures, and they really um, they help us sort of see past the noise, the headlines of the day, and really help us understand what are the really building block, first order, fundamental drivers of change in geopolitics. And I think that their scholarship, it's especially as we look at the implications of Russia's invasion of Ukraine for world order, um, how Russia's invasion of Ukraine is going to affect the relationship between Russia and China, uh, how it's going to affect great power competition. I would say the professors Fuzzle and Goddard are, are two of the scholars to whom I, um, I will certainly, I have been turning uh, and will continue to turn to help me understand how the world is changing. That is awesome. And you just you just gave me two more people to look up. So I, I, I suspect that it'll be more reading for me. Um, I'm going to look them up immediately. And of course, all of this is always in the show notes. Ali, this was an amazing conversation. I, I, loved, I loved having you on the deep dive. I appreciate it. Again, you know, the book is called America's Great Power Opportunity um, by Ali Wine. And, and thank you so much for being on the show with me. Uh, thank you so much, Philip, for having me on the show. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. And I, and I really, I, I should say, and this is a real credit to you, um, I, I really appreciate not only the the care with which you read the book, the the, the notes that you took on the book, but also just the, the candor and free-flowing nature of our conversation. It's, you know, sometimes when you do these conversations, you feel that you have to come with certain talking points and you have to follow a certain script. But I really just, I felt just very relaxed during our conversation. It was free-flowing. We cut, we burst across, I think, a really wide a range of terrain, but thoroughly enjoy the conversation. Uh, and I hope that it's the first of many to come. Absolutely, man. You you couldn't have, have given any higher praise. I, I love when guests come on and enjoy themselves. And, and this was amazing. I can't, I'm excited for people to hear it. So they'll be getting thank it you. soon. And um, again, thank you for being on the deep dive. Thank you so much for having me. It was a real honor and privilege. You can listen to the deep dive via Apple Podcasts, and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at farflungphil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.